I'm pretty blessed that the majority of my childhood is very, very happy. My siblings and I used to get to roam around with my grandmother and just, you know, go to different markets and just be, be kids. When Sarah Gulabdara thinks about her childhood growing up in Laos, she thinks about her family. And she thinks about the food. My grandmother used to grow mangoes. And when the mangoes are super ripe, she would just cut the, the top part, take out the seed, and smash up the mango. And she would make fresh, glutinous, sticky rice. A staple of Lao cuisine. It's so fresh and soft, and the rice was grown by the villagers within our village. Sarah didn't know at the time that many Laotian rice farmers were risking their lives. She was just a kid, getting a delicious breakfast from someone she loved. She would smash it up with the mango, stuff it back into the mango, give it to my siblings and I, and we would eat that on our way to school. Sarah also didn't know why her parents were so serious about her walking a very specific path to school. At the time, they used things like, you know, the ghosts or the giants will come and get you. But one day, on the way home from school, one of the village kids came across something and got distracted. All the kids, typically, we would walk together, but there's always the stragglers. What Sarah remembers is the screaming. People came running and calling on my dad. My father was a surgeon, uh, and he was the village doctor. And he had to um, operate immediately on a little girl about my age. Sarah was about six years old. He had to amputate her leg. The little girl had found a part of a cluster bomb, a weapon that scatters smaller bombs over a wide area. From 1964 to 1973, United States soldiers dropped more than two million tons of these bombs over Sarah's homeland. An estimated one-third of those never exploded, left in rice paddies, roads, and fields. It was part of the covert campaign to destroy communist supply lines between Laos and Vietnam, a campaign known now as the U.S. Secret War. It had an impression on my life, and it just made me think, like, how could something like this happen? Like, what happened to her? On today's episode... The long fight to protect people from explosive remnants of war. And what it's all meant for food, international law, and some of the most indiscriminate weapons in use today. I'm Lacey Healy, and this is Things That Go Boom. What if millions of Black Americans had been compensated for slavery? Join me, Tremangly, as I explore the untold story of one of the only Black Americans who ever was. I talk to his descendants and discuss how reparations forever change their family's trajectory and imagine a reality where reparations are paid to the rest of Black America. Into America presents Uncounted Millions, The Power of Reparations, a Black History Month series. New episodes drop Thursdays. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Spidey, everyone. Sarah here. I'm live in Geneva at the United Nations. These days, Sarah is fighting to clear Laos of those bombs as the executive director of a nonprofit called Legacies of War. Once bombs are dropped, if it's landing on soil that's soft, they're going to stay there until they're detonated, right? They're going to stay there until a deminer removes them or a child finds them and plays it and it explodes. And those soft soils... 
the ones where clusters are less likely to explode on impact, they're often the most fertile, meaning that some of the best agricultural land is also some of the most terrifying. One study from Ohio State University used satellite imagery and found that unexploded ordnance from cluster bombs in Cambodia had led to a 40% loss in income for the country's farmers. And this is very, very similar when you look at Laos's economy. 20% of Laos's GDP is dependent on agriculture. And over 60% of uh, Lao citizens depend on agriculture for their livelihood. Those costs can come from lots of places. You do have farmers who just risk it, working around the contamination to pay the bills. On the other hand, there's contamination people know they can't get around. They needed to farm to make a living, but they knew that every time they went out on their fields, they were risking life and limb. Back in 2016, Matthew Bolton was actually in Laos, doing research for his book, Political Minefield, when he was invited out to visit a farm. A farmer had just moved his barn to a new place. Something had caught the farmer's eye. And he had built this barn, and he found in the process of putting this barn together. And when the experts came out to investigate, well, they thought of Matthew. And so they took me to a safe distance from it and said, look, it's there. A submunition, right where the farmer was about to nail down a new post for the barn. And they were like, can you see it? He couldn't. I couldn't see it. But he wasn't sure he wanted to say that. I was feeling awkward and like, this is like strange war tourism. And I feel kind of ethically strange about them. Like, yes, they could tell that I was lying, that I could see it. Um, and they're like, no, no, you can see it, it's right, it's right there. And I couldn't see it. To be fair, it was small and brown, like the soil. There's this like little tennis ball that's rusting and has grooves on the edges of it. And inside the submunition are hundreds of ball bearings. And those grooves and the ball bearings mean that when it explodes, it fractures into thousands and thousands of tiny pieces of metal that spray all over a huge area. So they do awful things to people. And they weren't going to exactly like move it for me to be able to see. Later on, they sent him a picture. With it like circled uh, so that I would be able to see it. And so this farmer was attuned to it, you know, lives in this landscape and is aware that he needs to be on the lookout. Matthew's not alone. These days, Sarah travels back to Laos a lot for work. And she hears stories like his all the time. We're actually meeting people like today who have experienced like an accident, who have lost a child, who just found, like, randomly in their garden, within feet away from their home, cluster bombs, where they're trying to just grow coffee for their livelihood, right? Where they're trying to grow rice. And when she thinks of the impact of war on her home, she can't help but see parallels to what she sees in the news. We're kind of seeing history repeating themselves with Ukraine, with cluster bombs and and landmines being used there now. Ukraine is kind of seen as this, like, breadbasket of Europe. I consider Southeast Asia as sort of the breadbasket of Asia, and especially Laos, because literally every inch is farmable, but it's held hostage. Just to give you, like, some perspective, only 1% of the contaminated area in Laos has been cleared. We did not start demining work in Laos until 1994, right? Nearly two decades after the war ended. I can see that 
We haven't learned as a global community the indiscriminate impact that these weapons have during the time of war and decades later. It was extremely horrible that they were aimed at us. These pictures were taken by activists and show cluster munitions raining down on civilians. There's no doubt that the Syrian Air Force has used and is continuing to use cluster bombs. As we turn now to Yemen, Human Rights Watch has accused the Saudi-led coalition of dropping banned cluster bombs manufactured and supplied by the United States. A partly exploded British cluster bomb lies in a Yemeni storage facility. But in 2010, Britain agreed to ban these weapons and prevent their use by anyone else. Right now, countries from Colombia to Afghanistan to Iraq still deal with remnants of war that terrorize some of their most fertile soil. A ban on cluster munitions has been adopted by 108 states and ratified by 98. But major military powers like the U.S., Russia, and China haven't signed on. And that means today, Russia is littering Ukraine with clusters and landmines. This is new video that's showing explosions from cluster munitions. Military experts say it looks like Russia is using cluster bombs. An alleged Russian cluster bomb strike at this children's hospital in Ukraine, holding 237 kids. A BBC investigation has found clear evidence that a cluster bomb, banned by many countries under international law, was used in an attack on Kramatorsk railway station. And Ukraine has been accused of using clusters and landmines of its own. Which left us asking, here at Things That Go Boom, if these treaties are even working. Matthew doesn't think that question is really fair. How effective are militaries? They regularly fail at getting their objectives met. Matthew says there's a particular bias from global media and from foreign policy wonks. Whenever an aspect of something works, it's practical, pragmatic. We call it arms control, defense negotiations, tough talk between states. Whatever doesn't work is painted as naive and labeled humanitarianism. To bust that myth, we need to go back to the 90s, to an earlier treaty that set the stage for the Cluster Munitions Convention, the Ottawa Treaty, which banned anti-personnel landmines. Matthew says humanitarians fighting for that ban weren't naive at all. Actually, NGOs knew more about what was happening than states did. The Halo Trust, which was doing demining in Afghanistan at the end of the 1980s, is handed the maps of Soviet landmine positions by the authorities in the 80s. And the Red Cross is running hospitals in places like Afghanistan, and they're seeing landmine victims come through their surgery, and they know they have detailed information about what landmines do to human bodies that states didn't have. A few things are actually happening here. First, this is a big time for neoliberalism. Work done by the state is getting outsourced left and right. Meanwhile, NGOs are developing global brands. And all of this means that states that had once been the main bodies in charge of demining were now happily handing NGOs the reins. And you see, they know how landmines function. And so that consistently showed up to the ignorance of states that claimed that they were more realistic, quote unquote, than the NGOs, but they actually didn't know what landmines were doing and how they were configured in the landscape. And that kind of information politics, the information edge that NGOs had enabled them to link up with those 
you know, celebrity champions in charting a new course. January 1997. Princess Diana pulls up the streets of Angola in a white Red Cross van. And we must stop the landmines if we can. She's got the aid worker fit down. Denim vest, khakis, she makes jokes. But in the meeting, her eyes dart back and forth. Like, she's a little uncomfortable. Reminding herself that the cameras are still on, even while men in ties talk technicalities. That's a real problematic situation. She knows from experience, wherever she goes, controversies follow. By backing the Red Cross position, the princess has been seen by some as offering indirect support to Labour's policy of an immediate moratorium on Britain's use of landmines. Were you surprised at the political furore that came out as a result of your visit here to Angola? I saw it merely as a distraction because I'm not a political figure. I, I, I am a humanitarian figure and always have been and always will be. Someone like Princess Diana, who is at that moment trying to seek her own independent path to um, find some distance from the royal family and champion a kind of alternative way of being a royal. I've had more contact with people and there's been less formalities. It's the type of program I've been looking for for some time and I'm very happy to have done. Just like Diana, many countries were carving out new identities at this time. Canada was trying to sort of flex its muscles in the aftermath of the Cold War to really chart an independent course that uh, was not kind of dominated by bloc politics as it had been during the Cold War. The Canadians weren't alone. Ireland, Austria, a new post-apartheid South Africa, they were looking for a fresh opportunity to define themselves as middle powers. And they saw humanitarianism as a way to take a bigger role globally. There's an attempt to try to find a self-determining path for many of these states that had felt constrained by having to be loyal to their superpower protector. And so it kind of coalesces into the treaty banning anti-personnel mines in 1997. In this treaty, Matthew says it framed weapons in four very innovative ways. The first was that it placed humanitarian considerations rather than security considerations at the core of the conversation. Second, that they were seeking a comprehensive prohibition to stigmatize the weapon rather than to limit and manage it. Third, they took seriously, in a way that arms control negotiations had not done before, addressing the humanitarian effects. So like things like victim assistance, risk reduction education, and demining. And finally, the fourth thing is that it actively seeks to promote that norm. It's committed to universalizing it. Coming up after the break, an expert on international law says there's no doubt in her mind that future treaties grew out of this example. It's like, well, hold on, can we repeat the party trick? But she also says, let's not oversimplify. I do think that the Landmines Convention is part of the story, and I think that it represented a number of novel developments, but it wasn't the start of the story. We start here, overlap. You're hearing a video of Alex Van Roy showing reporters in Europe the exhausting, detail-oriented work of pulling up landmines for FSD. You get your trusty shovel, and this is, this is the most dangerous part, this excavation. Here, you're 10 centimeters, so it's okay to dig, to dig down. 
but on the center, not good. And he tells us later on Zoom, it's a task he knows intimately. It looks like a bunch of guys gardening, guys and girls gardening in, in effect. Gardening under the weight of a fragment-resistant vest, behind the polycarbonate visor that goes down to your neck, digging through fields that might have been avoided for decades. As you remove the soil, you check the soil with your detector to make sure there's no metal, because remember, some of these mines have such a small amounts of metal. So um, you continue excavating until you find a thing, something that looks a bit disturbing to you. At the end of the day, we, we blow all those items up. Blowing things up is kind of what got Van Roy into all of this. Before he started doing humanitarian work, he wasn't pulling mines out. He was laying them down. Well, never for real, just for practice. Van Roy was with the Australian Army for 17 years. And the question he was tasked with wasn't about whether to use mines, but about how to do them right, with fair, accurate maps so they could be picked up afterwards, and to come up with uses that fit within the rules about just war. At that time, mines were just another tool. One of the jobs in those days, back in the 80s and 90s, was countermobility or laying mines as part of obstacle plans to what we used to call shape the battlefield, to put the bad guys in the places that we wanted them to be so that we could use all our weapon systems. So mines were just part of that sort of plan. When Australia signed the Anti-Personnel Landmine Treaty, new rules meant a new plan. The decisions that needed to be made was, okay, what are we going to do instead? You can probably use other things to do the same sort of job if you're creative enough. You could use barbed wire, you could force them into trees where the trees are close together and that stops them. There's other obstacles that you could use instead that may have the same effect on the battlefield. And when one military says no, that often means it won't enter into coalition campaigns with any military using these weapons in the field. In a world where it feels like every war is fought by a coalition now, Matthew Bolton says that's a really big deal. Even the states that don't want to join the treaties think twice before using or engaging with them. Since the Landmine Convention, 33 countries that didn't sign the treaty are broadly in compliance with it, including us. The U.S. is destroying a lot of its mines, stockpiles, does not transfer them to other states, and is the largest contributor in terms of dollars to landmine clearance and victim assistance and other programs of kind of humanitarian assistance to mine-affected communities. Norms have worked for clusters too. Just look at America's changing approach to Laos. In the early 2000s, the U.S. government was giving around 1.5 million a year to address the impact of cluster munitions in Laos. Now they're giving 45 million. In 2020 alone, clearance efforts in Laos destroyed 71,000 submunitions. Still not enough. Again, that's not just an accident. For those who have studied carefully the policymaking process in the US, both on mines and cluster munitions, have shown that those decisions are made in the landscape that is shaped by those treaties and sometimes in reaction to it. The U.S. has not used cluster munitions since the Cluster Munition Treaty was negotiated in 2008. Bolton says that this gets to his point. Even if not everyone signs these agreements, they can still help set norms around what weapons can be used in a war. 
companies that are engaged in the manufacture and production are pulling out because many banks don't want to fund the production of weapons that are broadly stigmatized in the international system, both from a moral point of view, but also just from an investment point of view of the risk that, like, this is a declining market. That norm building worked with victim assistance in the landmine ban, too. The initial draft of the treaty didn't include a victim assistance provision, and survivors who were part of the campaign were absolutely furious. They said, you can't use our testimony, our example, our images in your political justification for why we need a treaty and not have the treaty do anything for us. That's tokenizing, right? That's not fair. The resulting insert was pretty lackluster. It just said that states should try to help if they can. However, we have seen a lot of states that engage with that and make victim assistance the core of what they do in relation to the Ottawa Treaty. And it shifts the conversation about weapons governance to a different kind of frame that I think is unfamiliar in Washington, D.C. A frame that activists look to once again when they fought to get rid of those other explosive leftovers. 33 atmospheric nuclear detonations happened in Kiribati on Christmas Island by the UK and the US. I bet if you ask a lot of quote-unquote nuclear experts in Russia and the United States if they've heard of Kiribati, I bet they can't place it on a map. The island country is smack in the middle of the Pacific, more than 10,000 miles away from Washington, D.C. And it and countries like it played a major role in the negotiation of the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. I am pleased to recognize today's entry into force the first multilateral nuclear disarmament treaty in more than two decades. The survivors of nuclear explosions and nuclear tests offered tragic testimonies and were a moral force behind the treaty. Today, Kiribati is the co-chair of the Nuclear Bans Working Group to address victims' assistance and remediation. By placing Kiribati at the center of the conversation, you change the conversation. This is not a conversation for two heads of state of the worst violators of the norm against nuclear weapons. This is going to be a conversation in which the states that are broadly opposed to nuclear weapons are going to take the lead. It's shocking to me how little that has been done. At the same time, despite getting 92 countries on board, the nuclear ban enjoys exactly zero support from the world's nuclear armed states. Not one has signed on. And the wider nuclear landscape is changing. Many think for the worse. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has brought us closer to a nuclear war than we've been in a very long time. And this past August, the latest review conference of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty achieved very little. Add this all up, and the concept of a worldwide nuclear ban might feel less like reality and more like a fantasy. But Matthew says if you look closely, you might see things differently. For example, Germany and Switzerland, who are non-signatories, are now using language from the ban treaty when they talk about how to help affected communities. So it's already having an effect. And the nuclear ban treaty is applying this approach that was developed in the landmine and cluster munition treaties to nuclear weapons. Has it magically immediately solved the problem of nuclear weapons? No. But I think that's an unrealistic and unfair rubric to grade it upon. But maybe the reason that we're tempted to use that rubric is that we haven't learned the lesson we should from these other fights. Fights that still aren't over. <laughs> 
I am Tressa Dunworth at the University of Auckland um, in New Zealand. I'm an academic there and the topic of my PhD, which was subsequently published in book form by Cambridge University Press, is humanitarian disarmament. Tracy studies the long arm of humanitarian disarmament, and she says that the ultimate success of treaties like the Landmines Convention and the Clusters Ban are rooted in a much longer history. If we tell a shorter story, all we needed was internet technology and a few good, well-meaning people with hard work, and then we've got the recipe, and then we'll get the treaty, and then we'll get rid of landmines forever, right? But that's not true. Getting to an actual ban on landmines was a road with lots of pit stops. Pit stops like the Hague Rules on Just War in 1899, or the Chemical Weapons Convention in 1992 and its commitment to victims' assistance. And don't forget the League of Nations' attempts at peace through disarmament, a concept that was roundly smashed as naive after the Second World War. The road to success was littered with decades of false starts and legal precedents. You know, 1970, where are we going to go? It was a bit of a damp squid. So the, that body of law was revised by 1977. It did cover some statements about indiscriminate, very disappointing result from a weapons perspective. So you have the 1980 treaty and of these weapons. They were called blind weapons at the time because seed after seed after seed. Oftentimes, it kind of didn't work out how people wanted. When we focus only on the success story, we give ourselves a false idea about what exactly it will take to win. And that's when we despair. Then we despair when it doesn't work the next time in something else. And we think, but this should be easy. We should be able to get this result. And if we despair, we stop making donations to campaigns. We stop fighting so hard and we give up. And I think that we don't say we're going to wait for a very long time. We're going to actively work and take wins. As for Sarah, she's still doing that work, trying to get America's attention and money for the intergenerational survivors in Laos. Recently, that meant that she got to visit her childhood province and have the honor of detonating a cluster bomb. It just really felt to me like the ground was rumbling, right? It was almost like being in a low-level earthquake environment, but the sound, it just shook me to think, like, imagine if your grandmother was planting and that happened. But the villagers, and especially the children nearby that also heard the impact of this, didn't have any reaction because this is their reality. This is, like, their everyday life. Things That Go Boom is distributed by Inkstick Media and PRX. This episode was produced by Katie Toth and me and edited by Nikki Galtland and Christina Stella. The music for our show is written by Darian Shulman, and Robin Wise makes each episode sound more decadent than a Brazilian brigadeiro. Yes, this is another reminder about our next episode. If you want to hear us talk about Lula's plans to end hunger in Brazil, don't forget to subscribe to us in your favorite podcast app if you haven't already. Thanks to the supporters and foundations that make our work possible, the Carnegie Corporation of New York and Plowshares Fund, as well as Inkstick supporters, 
including the Cologne Foundation, Craig Newmark Foundation, Prospect Hill Foundation, and the Jubitz Family Foundation. If you're listening and you like what we do, we always love to hear from you. Go on over and leave us a review and come visit us anytime on social at Inkstick Media. We'll see you right back here in two weeks. I was a young officer and probably more concerned about chasing girls than strategic planning. <laughs> Thank you.